Session thirty-seven of the Fairy Book. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Claire Howe. The Fairy Book by Dinah Maria Mulock. The Hind of the Forest, Part One. A beautiful queen whose subjects adored her, whose husband thought her. The best women in the world had but one sorrow, which was equally a sorrow both to the king and the country. She brought him no heir to the throne. She, at last, grew so melancholy that she was ordered, for her health, to drink the medicinal waters that were found in a celebrated wood. And one day, sitting beside one of these fountains. Which fell into a marble and porphyry basin. She sent all her ladies away that she might the better weep and lament unobserved. How unhappy am I! Said she. Five years have been married, and am still childless, while the poorest women in the land have children by the dozen. Am I to die without ever giving the king an heir? While she spoke. She noticed that the water of the fountain was slightly disturbed, and there issued thence a large crayfish, who thus addressed her: "Great queen, you shall have what you desire, but first you must go to the fairy palace, which is near here, though so surrounded by mists and clouds as to be invisible to mortal eyes, unless you be conducted there by a poor crayfish." Though very much surprised, the queen answered courteously that she had no objection except that the animal's method of walking would not well suit her own. The shellfish smiled. If a shellfish can smile, it immediately took the shape of a pretty little old woman. Madame said she, "We now need not walk crab fashion. Consider me as your friend." For indeed, I'm desirous of being so. So saying, she jumped out of the fountain, her clothes not being the least wet, though they were made of white and crimson velvet, nor her grey hair damp. It was tied with green ribbons and appeared all in order, smooth as silk. She saluted the queen and then conducted her by a road which, strange to say, was、well, as she knew every. The wood, her Majesty had never before seen, to a palace of which the walls, roofs, and balconies were built entirely of diamonds. Is all this a dream? cried the delighted queen. But no, it was a reality. For the gates straightway opened, six beautiful fairies appeared, who, making her a profound reverence, presented her. With six flowers composed of jewels, a rose, a tulip, an anemone, and jasmine, a carnation, and heart seeds. Madame said they, we could not give a greater mark of our favor than in permitting you to come here. We are delighted to tell you that by and by you will have a little daughter, whom you must name Desiree. The desired, as soon as she is born. Called us and will endow her with all sorts of good qualities. You have only to take this bouquet and name each separate flower, thinking of us, when immediately we shall be.
present in your chamber. The queen, transported with joy, embraced all the fairies, spent the day with them, and returned laden with presents to the fountain side, where the little old woman jumped into the water, became a crayfish again, and disappeared. In due time, the princess Desiree was born, and the queen did as she was told in naming the flowers. Soon, all the six fairies appeared in different chariots of ebony, drawn by white pigeons, of ivory, drawn by black crows, and so on, in great variety. They entered the royal chamber with an air at once cheerful and majestic, embraced the queen and the little princess, and spread out all their presents. These were linen, so fine that none but fairy hands could have spun it, lace and embroidery without end, and the cradle, the wonder of the world. It was made of wood more precious than gold, and at each corner stood four animated images, little cupids, who, as soon as the baby cried, began to rock it of their own accord. Then the six fairies kissed and dandled the princess, bestowing on her for her portion beauty, good temper, good health, talents, long life, and the faculty of doing thoroughly well everything she tried to do. The queen, overcome with gratitude, was thanking them with all her heart for their kindness to her little daughter when she saw enter her chamber a crayfish so large that it could hardly pass through the door. Ungrateful queen, said the crab, have you forgotten the fairy of the fountain? You sent for these, my sisters, and not for me, who am the one to whom you owe most of all. The queen made a hundred apologies, and the six fairies tried vainly to pacify the other one. But she was determined, as she said, to punish ingratitude. However, added she, I will give no worse gift to the princess than to warn you that if you let her see daylight before she is fifteen years old, you will repent it. So saying, she retired backwards, crab fashion, resisting all entreaties to resume her proper form and join in the festivities. The afflicted mother took counsel with the six fairies how she was to save her baby from this impending evil, and after many conflicting opinions, they advised her to build a tower without doors or windows, and with a subterranean entrance, which the princess might inhabit till she had passed the fatal age. Everything is easy to fairies. So, three strokes of their wands, making eighteen strokes in all, began and finished the edifice. It was built of green and white marble, ornamented inside with diamonds and emeralds, and hung with tapestry, all fairy work, on which was pictured the lives of heroes. Though there was only lamplight allowed, yet the lamps were so numerous that they made the tower seem as bright as day. Whether the princess was ever permitted any fresh air or taken out for a walk by starlight or moonlight, the history does not say, 
but it does say one thing: that she grew up very happy, very lovely, and very well educated. The six fairies came frequently to see her, and were most kind and affectionate to her. But the one she loved best among them all was Tulip. By this fairy device, the nearer she approached the age of fifteen, the more carefully was Desiree shut up from daylight. But her mother, who was very proud of her beauty, caused her portrait to be painted and sent among all the neighboring courts in order that some prince might seek her in marriage. There was one prince. Was so captivated by this likeness that he shut himself up with it and talked to it as if it had been alive, making love to it in the most passionate manner, and then falling into a hopeless melancholy. When his father tried to discover the cause of this, "Sir," said Prince Warrior, "he went by that name because, young as he was, he had already gained three battles." My grief is that you wish me to marry the black princess, while I will only marry the princess Desiree. I have seen her portrait, and without her, I shall surely die. Behold her. The king looked at the portrait. Well, my son, I cannot wish for a more charming daughter-in-law. We will retract our offers for the black princess and send an ambassador to propose for the princess Desiree. The prince, kissing his father's hand, overwhelmed him with his gratitude and joy. A courtier, Becafico by name, young and gallant, was dispatched with eighty equipages, a hundred mounted squires, and the portrait of the prince warrior to ask the princess Desiree in marriage. The report of his splendours travelled before him. Till it reached the ears of the king and queen, and of the six fairies, who were all equally delighted. But said the fairy Tulip, who was the sagest of them, "Beware, queen, of allowing Becafico to see our child, as they tenderly called Desiree, and do not, upon any account, suffer her to leave her tower for the kingdom of Prince Warrior until her fifteenth." Birthday is past. The ambassador arrived. His magnificent train took twenty-three days in going through the gates of the city. He made his harangue to the king and queen, and much state ceremonial passed between them. Then he begged for the honor of an audience with the princess, and was very much astonished to find it denied him. Still more so. When the king candidly told him the whole story, the queen had strictly enjoined the ladies of honor not to tell her daughter one word of the ambassador's visit or her intended marriage. Yet somehow the princess already knew it quite well, but she was wise enough to say nothing about it. When her mother showed her the prince's portrait and asked her if she should like such a gallant young man for her husband, she replied humbly that she should be quite satisfied with any choice her parents made for her. So her hand was promised, but as she still wanted three months of fifteen, the prince was requested to wait thus long. 
he took this delight so much to heart that he could neither eat nor sleep. Meantime, Desiree was little better. She did nothing but look at the prince's portrait, and was exceedingly irritable with Longthorn and Gilliflower, her two maids of honor. The other lady, the black princess, was in equally sore plight, for her, too, had fallen in love with the prince's portrait, and his rejection of her hand offended her much. What? said she to the ambassador. Your master does not find me handsome enough or rich enough? Madame, said the ambassador, as much as a subject dare blame a sovereign, I blame my prince. Had I the first throne in the world, I should know to whom to offer it. He said this because he feared the bastinado, for Ethiopians are warm haters as well as warm lovers. The black princess was softened and dismissed him on which he gladly took himself out of the country but the ethiopian lady was too deeply offended with prince warrior to pardon him so readily she mounted her ivory car drawn by six ostriches which ran at a rate of six leagues an hour and went to the palace of her godmother the fairy of the fountain who had been so offended by being forgotten at the birth of Desiree. Arrived there, she unfolded all her annoyance. The fairy consoled her and promised to aid her in her revenge. Meantime, Becafico had travelled with all diligence to the capital of Desiree's father, where with earnest entreaties he begged that the princess might be sent back with him to her betrothed spouse who otherwise would certainly die of which tidings the princess herself was so much moved that she fainted away thus her parents discovered how deeply in love she was with prince warrior do not disquiet yourself my dear child said the queen if the prince suffers it is you who can console him my only fear is on account of the menace of the fairy of the fountain but desiree was so eager to start that she suggested being sent away in a closed carriage where the light of day should never penetrate and which should only be opened at night time to give her food she was willing to suffer any inconvenience for the sake of saving the life of prince warrior the parents assented so there was built a magnificent equipage green velvet outside and lined with rose colour and silver brocade it was very large but it shut up as tight as a box and it had a huge lock the key of which was entrusted to one of the highest noblemen of the court in this carriage desiree was placed after most affecting adieus by her father and mother, and with her were sent her maid Anna, Longthorn, and Gilliflower, and the lady in waiting who was the mother of both. Now, Longthorn cared little for the princess, but she cared very much for Prince Warrior, whose portrait she had seen. And when the bridal train departed, she said to her mother that she should certainly die if this marriage were accomplished. So the mother, 
Notwithstanding the confidence placed in her by Queen, that she should watch over the princess and carefully seclude her from daylight until she had reached the age of fifteen, yielded to her own child's persuasions and determined to betray her trust. Longfon, who learned each evening from the officers of the household, when they came to bring the princess her supper, how far they were on their journey. At last, persuaded her mother, who put off the cruel act as long as she could, that it would never do to wait any longer. They were nearly at the capital, and the young prince might, in his impatience, come to meet them, and the opportunity be lost. So next day at noon, when the sun was at the hottest, the lady in waiting took out a knife which she had brought with her for the purpose, cut a large hole. In the side of the carriage, where they were all shut up together, and the princess, for the first time in her life, beheld daylight. She uttered a deep sigh and immediately leaped out of the carriage in the form of a white hind, which fled away like lightning and hid itself in the thickest recesses of a neighboring wood. End of the hind of the forest, part one. Recorded from Houston, Texas.